following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, in his first letter, the Apostle Peter stated that the matter of salvation, as revealed by the Holy Spirit, as proclaimed by the prophets, as centered on the sufferings and glories of our Lord Jesus Christ, the matter of salvation as announced in the gospel is something into which angels long to look. Our salvation is something into which angels long to look. Concerning this angelic longing, Edmund Hebert wrote, those great and glorious realities concerning the Messiah that fascinated the prophets and engaged the energies of the messengers of the gospel also are the objects of intense angelic interest. He went on and said that the word long in the Greek denotes a strong interest or craving. The present tense portrays a present continued inner yearning to comprehend the term marks an enduring angelic effort to comprehend more of the mystery of human salvation. Another commentator described this angelic longing as, quote, a strong desire or overpowering impulse that is not easily satisfied. The term indicates that the angel's interest in salvation is not merely whimsical or an incidental curiosity, but a strong passion within them. The angels, as it were, want to get down close and look deeply into the matters related to salvation. These glorious created beings have no idea what it means to be saved. They never sinned. They were never in need of redemption. They were in, never in need of restoration. And so they look at us who were made a little lower than them in terms of status and authority. And they've seen us defy and rebel against the God of glory in whose presence they live and before whose throne they worship. And Peter tells us that when it comes to our salvation, the angels stand in absolute wonder of it all. And I have to believe that every aspect of our salvation is a mystery to the angels. I'm sure they stand in awe that the spirit of the living God would choose to reside and remain in us as his earthly temple. They see the ways that we as believers still sin and stray and wander away from God. And yet they see the Spirit of God continue to remain in us and work in us in order to sanctify us. I'm sure they stand in amazement at that. 
I'm sure they stand in awe that the Son of God would leave his eternal throne, descend from his glorious throne, take upon himself a human nature, be born as a helpless babe to a humble virgin in a no-name town, to not only an ungrateful world, but a God-hating world that would eventually demand his crucifixion. I'm sure they stand in awe. I'm sure they stood in awe in the garden of Gethsemane when they saw their king lying prostrate on his face on the ground, his sweat having become like great drops of blood falling to the earth, praying to his father with what the writer of Hebrews calls loud cries and tears as he experienced the indescribable agony that came from the realization that he, the Holy, Holy, Holy One, was about to become sin on behalf of his people and be crushed under the weight of God's justice and wrath as the surety and substitute of God's people. I'm sure it amazed them. Shortly after this, I'm sure they stood in awe in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas came with a great crowd armed with swords and clubs in order to seize and arrest their king. This was their king, and had he appealed to his father in that moment, Jesus said that he, his father would have immediately sent more than 12 legions of angels to rescue him. By the way, an ancient Roman legion was anywhere between three and 6,000 soldiers. What Jesus is saying is that thousands and thousands and thousands of angels are always on standby to carry out his command without the slightest hesitation. Yet he never called for them. I'm sure they stood amazed. I'm certain the angels watched in unutterable wonder and astonishment as their king was illegally tried and slandered and blasphemed and abused and spit upon and mocked and crowned with a crown of thorns and led down the streets of Jerusalem, nailed to the cross and suspended between heaven and earth while his enemies continued to hurl their insults upon him. Can you imagine these, bystand, these bystanders? These angels. I'm sure the angels stood in even greater bewilderment when they heard their king, who at this point, according to Isaiah 53, was so marred beyond human recognition. When they heard him crying out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Without any answer from heaven. Instead, silence and darkness. The God who dwells in unapproachable light, suffering, crying out in darkness. I'm sure the angels look at salvation as a whole, as a startling mystery. But specifically for our sake this morning, I'm sure they look at the very first aspect of salvation. God's decision and choice to save sinners with an enormous sense of wonder and amazement. Maybe it wasn't a big deal to witness this in eternity past. For the angels at that time didn't really know what would become of mankind. Maybe God revealed it to them. I don't know. 
pure speculation here, but I have to believe that as time progressed, as Adam and Eve rebelled and fell, as mankind after them began to spiral downward into sin and wickedness, and as God eventually judged the ancient world with the flood, I'm sure the astonishment and wonder of the angels as it related to God's decision and choice to save sinners only increased and abounded. And even at this moment today, right now, I'm sure they look at the church. I'm sure they look at us and they ask the question, why would God choose them? Why would God choose them? Remember, the angels, according to Hebrews, are ministering spirits that are sent out to serve for the sake of those who are, who are to inherit salvation. That is, they're sent to help us in ways that are unbeknownst to us. Which means they see us. They know us. To some extent, they probably follow us. Which is why I believe they stand in awe of God's decision to save us. I say that with confidence because I look at myself on a regular basis and ask, why would he choose me? This morning, as we continue to study the saving work of our triune God, we go to the very beginning, and actually before the beginning, where our salvation began. We go to the time before the creation of the world, if indeed we can call it time. Paul says it was before the ages began. There, before the world was teeming with living creatures, And even before there was a world, we are told that God chose to save a vast multitude of sinners whom no man can number, even though the exact number is known by God and was determined by God. The one who determined the number of stars and even went as far as naming each and every one of those stars determined before the creation of the world the number of fallen sinners that he would lavish with his grace to the praise of his glory. But you say, how could he do this when there wasn't even a universe? There wasn't even a Milky Way. There wasn't even an earth. There wasn't a people to dwell on that earth. The biblical answer is that he chose to display and magnify the riches of his grace and mercy before there was an earth, before there were humans, before there was sin and a fall into sin. This means that in the grand scheme of things, this earth is but a theater a stage in which God, the director and hero, is displaying his glorious grace in the everlasting salvation of sinners that he determined to save before the theater and the stage even existed. This helps us to see that this, all of this, is his story for his glory. We are considering this morning the doctrine, the biblical teaching of Election. We live in a day when we rarely hear sermons on the doctrine of God's election. And if we do, half the sermon is spent apologizing for it. We live in a day when, sadly, Christians are more interested in and more familiar with political elections than divine election. 
I believe as our world grows darker and darker and humanism continues to thrive and excel, the doctrine of election becomes more and more repulsive to a church that has slowly but surely been influenced by our godless culture's views on justice and fairness and equal rights and what we deserve and what we don't deserve. You see, in a world of God-diminishing boasting about man's abilities and what man can do and what man is, many Christians have gradually developed a high view of man and what man can do and what man can offer to God. In an age of entitlement, in a culture of entitlement, sin has influenced even well-meaning Christians to believe that every human being is entitled to a chance at being saved from the power and punishment and presence of sin. We think God owes us. All the while, the word of God has not changed. And more importantly, the God of the word has not changed. His plan of salvation has not changed. What God speaks forth as truth will forever stand as truth. The psalmist declared, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. I'll start by saying, whatever else election is, it is a tremendous blessing. Listen to the words of Psalm 65 and verse 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Blessed is the one that you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. And although this is referring to God's Old Testament choice of who would become a priest and who would serve as as priests, it also applies to all believers because as the New Testament teaches us, we are all priests. We are a royal priesthood. He chose us to dwell in his courts and to serve him. When we talk about election, we are talking about God's choice of whom he would save and whom he would bring into his kingdom. The main word in the New Testament is the word eklego. Its verb form is found 22 times in the New Testament. Just listen to a few of them. Mark 13, 20, Jesus says, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. The elect are those whom God chose. John 15, verse 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose the things that are nothing to bring to nothing things that are. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And James 2, 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom? He chose. That's the verb form of this word. But when it comes to the noun form of this word, elect, it's also found... 22 times in the New Testament. And out of those 22 times, 17 of those references have to do 
with salvation. Listen to a few references. Luke 18, verse 7. Jesus, speaking of his people, he says, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Romans 8, 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And finally, Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings. And listen, those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Another New Testament word for election is the word ekloge. And it's found seven times in the New Testament. Just listen to a few references. Romans 9, 11. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, might stand Romans 11, verse 5, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Romans 11, 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4, Paul says, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. And finally, 2 Peter 1, verse 10 Peter admonishes the church, encourages them in saying, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. To make sure, to make certain your calling and election. So, anyone that tells you that the doctrine or teaching of election isn't in the Bible, you can humbly remind them that they need to keep reading their Bibles. The more important question is not whether election is in the Bible, but whether or not election is conditional. That is, whether or not God chooses sinners based on any conditions being met on their part. That's the question. We know it's in the Bible. Every Christian can say election is in the Bible. But the next step we need to ask is, is this election Is God's choice conditional or unconditional? This is where the controversy lies. There are some who will try and tell you that God chose sinners before the foundation of the world based on the fact that he foresaw that they would choose him. He foresaw that they would repent of their sin And he foresaw that they would believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore God chose them. He chose them before time because he saw that they would choose him in time. This is called conditional election. God chose sinners based on the fact that he foresaw that they would meet his condition to repent and believe in his son. But as we've seen the past few weeks, there's a reason why the doctrine of total depravity comes before unconditional election. Because the doctrine or biblical teaching of total depravity tells us that man is so wicked, he is dead in his sin, that he in and of himself is unable to move himself an inch closer to God, that he is so in and under the bondage of sin that if anything is to be done for his salvation, God must initiate it. 
And as we concluded last week, that divine initiation is called election or unconditional election. You see, if we were to adopt the view of conditional election, that God chose us only because he saw that we first chose him, that absolutely destroys the very meaning of God choosing. Because in the end, his choice is really no choice at all. He is not so much a savior, he is a responder. We do the choosing, he responds by saying, well, I pick winners. And so he picks the winning, winning team. We are not winners. Man chose God, and so God merely responds to man's choice by choosing man. Secondly, conditional election is impossible because even if God looked into the future, what would he see in us? If someone opens that door, they are, they are simultaneously setting a trap for themselves. Well, God foresaw, okay, God foresaw what? What did God look into the future and see in who man was as the Bible describes man? He would see a multitude of sinners throughout the ages seeking him, choosing him, believing in him, turning from their sin, doing good in any way. What would he see? Even if he did look down the corridors of time before there was an earth, what would he see? Friends, he would see a humanity, much like Ezekiel's graveyard, with bones that are dry, indeed very dry. He saw a humanity dead in their trespasses and in their sins. He saw a humanity depraved and defiled and enslaved and completely unable to free themselves from the power and pleasure and bondage of sin. He saw humanity in need of his intervention. He saw hopelessness. That's what the Bible says when, that's what the Bible means when in Ephesians chapter 2 it says that prior to Christ we were hopeless. Hopeless, not hopeless in need of a little bit of help. Hopeless with a little bit of island of righteousness somewhere within us. Hopelessness, no hope, without hope, without God in the world. Even if, like this view says, he looked ahead of time into the future and he saw sinners repenting and believing in his son, we have to ask, did they do that on their own? Or was that repentance granted to them? Was that faith granted to them? Because if the Bible, I should say, since the Bible, teaches that faith and repentance are gifts from God's grace, if he were to look ahead of time and see repentance and faith, you know what he would see? he would see his own hand granting repentance and faith. So you really want to go down that argument? You really want to go down that road? He would see his own hand. He would see his own grace raising this graveyard to newness of life. That's what he would see. You see, biblically, repentance and faith are gifts of God's sovereign grace given to those whom he chose beforehand to bestow the riches of his grace upon 
By the way, God has always been the chooser and the initiator. We learn in, even in the Old Testament that God chose some men to be priests. Not everyone is called to be a priest. He chose some to be prophets, such as Moses. God chose the nation of Israel for a special purpose. And as you read Deuteronomy chapter 7, when God explains why he chose Israel out of all the nations of the earth, he says, I chose you because I loved you. And he goes as far as telling them, it is not because of anything in you. It wasn't because you were more in number than all the nations. He says, my choice of you has to do with my love for you. It's not on them. It was entirely unconditional. You see, it's amazing in our world and even in the church. Everyone loves to talk about God's unconditional love. But the second you say unconditional election, their arms go back. They don't want to talk about unconditional election. They want to talk about unconditional love, but not unconditional election. Jesus chose 12 apostles to follow him, to be entrusted with the gospel. God has always done the choosing. Now, some people will say, well, you know, election is election unto service, unto serving God. It's not necessarily having to do with salvation. But they miss three key passages. Listen to them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. We read, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God's appointment has to do with salvation. He did not appoint us to wrath, but he appointed us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Passage number two, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. God from the beginning chose you for salvation. He chose you to be saved. And finally, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, Paul explaining why he endures his sufferings. He says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. People will say, well, the doctrine of unconditional election frustrates the Great Commission. No, friends, it fuels the Great Commission. We are, grant, we are promised success because of the doctrine of election. Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that as I go and preach, they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It's election unto salvation. Election unto salvation. Louis Burkhoff provides, I think, a good, concise definition of election. He says, quote, Election is that eternal, internal act of God whereby he, in his sovereign good pleasure and on account of no foreseen merit in them, chooses a certain number of men to be the recipients of special grace and eternal salvation. First thing I want you to note about election is it is eternal. It is eternal. That means it took place in eternity past, if we can word it that way. 
God is eternal, and so you know you get into the eternity past and eternity future, and in between them you have time. It was some time in eternity past when God chose us. That's why it's called predestination, not post-destination. God elected in eternity past, not in time. The election's over. Listen to a few passages. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. The Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God chose you from the beginning. And a passage we looked at last week in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before time began. Before time began. That's when this all began. Before time. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 tells us that God promised us eternal life before time began. It did not happen in time. It happened before time. God's not still choosing people. It's done. It's done. Second thing I want you to know is we're talking about a definite number here. We're not just talking about a vast multitude of people. You know, a very large number. You know, we're talking about a specific number of persons. The Westminster Confession rightly explains, quote, their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or decreased. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 calls it a very large innumerable number but that no man can count, that no man can number even though the number is known to God. It's vast, but it's specific. It's a definite number. What I love about this is that election is personal. It's personal. Sometimes we hear people explain the doctrine of election as if it's some distant, cold doctrine or teaching from the word of God, that God chooses sinners he chooses people. Friends, he chooses individuals. He chose you. He decided to save you individually. One of the most precious passages regarding this is in Romans chapter 16, verse 13. As Paul is wrapping up his letter to the Romans, he says something very simple, but it's so profound. He says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Rufus was chosen in the Lord. Among whatever else we know about this man or don't know, we know that God chose Rufus. Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, addresses them as personally chosen by God. You see, God deals with us as persons, not as mere numbers, not as abstract entities. He regards us as persons. Adam named the animals. God named all the stars. And God also calls all his sheep by name. That's what we're told in the word of God. Another thing that I want you to note about election is that it's irrevocable. 
We find language in the Bible that the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. He's not going to take it back. To say that God would take it back or change his mind would be to indicate that God made a mistake. That God, who is perfect, made a mistake. That he meant to choose someone but got mixed up and it turned out to be someone else. No, friends, it's irrevocable. Because God and his ways, this rock, his ways are perfect in all his ways. Like with any election, sinful men might demand a recount and challenge the election. But in this case, it's all in vain. What I love about this is that election is not only personal, but it's mutual. God chose us in order that we might choose him. Right, We choose him because he chose us. This order is so very important. 1 John 4.19 puts it this way, we love him because he first loved us. And that love was unconditional and therefore the election was unconditional. It wasn't because of anything God saw in you. Thank God. That would be horrible if God made his decision to save you based upon your performance. That is not good news. That is not good news. God did not choose us because he foresaw that we would choose him. God chose us in order that we might choose him. It's a mutual election. In Ephesians chapter 1, Really, the whole thing can be summarized in three words. He chose us. That's it. He chose us. Ephesians 1, 4. It's the sovereign gift of the God of the universe. One author writes, when anyone challenges this, it is no academic matter. It is a proud attempt to take to oneself what belongs only to God. That is rebellion and theft. In effect, such a person wants to play God. We direct such persons to Matthew chapter 20, verse 15, where our Lord Jesus says, Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? There's a passage in John chapter 15, verse 16. Some people try to strip this away from us. Jesus in that passage says, You did not choose me but I chose you. And they'll say, ah, but he's talking about his choice of who would be an apostle, who would be amongst the number of the apostles. Well, first, Jesus did not address these words to Judas because at that time in the night, he had already left. So he says to his remaining 11, I chose you. You did not choose me. I chose you. Second, It has to be interpreted in light of John 13, verse 18, when Judas was still there. And we read this, Jesus saying, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Judas may have been chosen to apostleship, but not to salvation. And we know that because had he been chosen to salvation, he would have never been lost because John 6 has already established that those who are given to the Son The sun will not lose them. They will not be lost. They will be raised up on the last day. Thirdly, John 15, 19 indicates that Jesus is speaking of election to salvation, not mere apostleship. He says, I chose you 
out of the world. And this obviously did not include Judas for the whole time he was with Jesus. He was still technically of the world, according to John 17. But the others were considered not of the world anymore. However, Judas was. But he chose us. He chose us. <clears throat> election is unconditional in that it is the election of grace, as the Bible calls it. Now, we know that according to the Old Testament and even the New Testament, God has a general love for all people. Psalm 145, verse 9, and Matthew 5, 45, God has a general love for all of his creatures. But we can't deny his special love for his elect. We cannot deny that. We are called as husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church. That's a special kind of love. He highlights his own love for his elect bride in that passage. He doesn't say, husbands, love your wives as you all, you would love all women. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. What I love about this, and I alluded to it last week, is there's a spiritual romance to all of this. God chose a bride for his son before there was a world for that bride to even walk on. He chose this bride and Christ would come and take upon himself the sin of this bride and die for her and rise for her and ascend for her and then ultimately return for her and consummate the marriage. That's what we're waiting for. He chose a bride. So we see a spiritual romance involved in the doctrine of election. What I want you to... Just turn with me to um, Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to see this. Ephesians chapter 1. Some people I've heard try to get around this by saying, well, no, God chose the plan of salvation. He decreed that there would be a ship leading us to salvation that we all can get on. It's amazing what people will do to get around this good news. God does the choosing to eliminate all boasting and to secure whatever boasting is there, that it would be boasting in him. Paul says in verse 3 of Ephesians 1, Blessed be, praised be to God and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as, and here's that first spiritual blessing. Where does it begin? Election. Listen to verse 4. Listen to verse 4. Even as he, the Father, chose us, in Christ, stop right there. Our salvation is by grace, but it's in Christ. In other words, every aspect of our salvation comes to us through our connection to Jesus Christ. He chose us in him. He didn't choose us apart from Christ because there's nothing to love apart from Christ. There's only wrath apart from Christ. 
He chose us through Christ, in Christ, to be saved by our union with Christ. He chose us in Christ. Those two words, in Christ, are so packed with meaning that we can spend ages unpacking the meaning, but he chose us in Christ. When did he do it? Look at this. Before the foundation of the world. Why did he do it? That we should be holy and blameless before him. God determined before the foundation of the world that he would have a holy and blameless people who would stand before him, who would be before his face. And believe it or not, I've even heard people try to get around this by saying, well, he didn't choose us to salvation. He chose us to be holy and blameless. As if being holy and blameless in the presence of God is not salvation. How can you be holy and blameless but having your sins washed away, having wrath propitiated by the substitute? How can you be blameless but by having your sin debt paid by the Lord Jesus Christ? How can you be holy how, when you by nature are unholy? The means of that holiness the means of that sanctification. Read the book of Hebrews. He, by his once for all offering, has sanctified us once and for all, bringing us to God. He made us holy by his sacrifice. Again, it's amazing how people will do hermeneutical jumping jacks to get around this stuff. He did this before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, at this point, there can be Two options, according to the Greek. It can mean that in our ESV it says, period, and then in love he predestined us. Or if you have you know, an older version, like the King James, something like that, uh, it's that he chose us, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. It's not a big difference in the end. Either it says it in love he predestined us or he chose us for a love relationship. It's still good news either way. In love, verse 5, he predestined us. There's a difference between election and predestination. Election has to do with God's choice of who he would lavish his grace upon. His choice of which undeserving, hell-deserving sinners he would bring into his family. Predestination is foreordaining the plan by which he would save them. The path to which they would meet the living Christ. Ordering our lives ordering when we would hear the gospel and be granted newness of life by the Spirit of God. And when we would come and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. I love that phrase. All of this is according to the purpose of his will. Some people try to say, well, election is arbitrary. That means... It's left solely up to the one doing the choosing. And it's according to his will, according to his purpose. He has a purpose. And as the potter, he doesn't owe the clay an explanation. Even though he, we can put traces of it together, we can put evidences together of why he chose. It's for the praise of his glorious grace. It's for the praise of his glory. But ultimately, at the end of the day, this is all according to the purpose of his will. 
As parents, you know, we sometimes tell our children when they say, well, why can't I do that? And we say, well, because mommy and daddy said so. This is Paul's way of saying the father has said so, according to the purpose of his will. But notice this, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What's the purpose of election? Well, it's according to God's own purpose, but it's for the praise of his glorious grace. It's so that we would spend endless ages throughout eternity praising his glorious, magnanimous grace. That's why he chose us that we might forever stand in awe of his undeserved kindness that he has lavished upon us. That's what it means that he's done this to the praise of his glorious grace. Well, let's keep going in the text. In him, speaking of Jesus, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Again, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, and here it is the third time, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory. We need to get it in our brains that salvation is about the glory of God. It's about him. History is about him. This world is a theater displaying his glory in creation in redemption, it's all about him displaying the riches of his grace and glory. Now, it's amazing because, you know, there's a few places in the New Testament where we find that election is according to foreknowledge, foreordination. For example, if you want to turn with me to First Peter Chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, those who insist that election is conditional, they'll point to passages like 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, where the Apostle Peter says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge, prognosin, the foreknowledge of God the Father. And some are quick to think that this is foresight. We're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. They'll say, well, God foreknew that we would. But there's no that we would in the text. He foreknew us, as we're going to see in Romans 8. God elected them, they'll say, because they, he foresaw that they would believe in him. Well, this same word is actually used later on in chapter 1, verse 20. Same chapter, where it tells us that Christ was 
foreknown or foreordained before the foundation of the world. And we know that Christ and the crucifixion was not merely something that God knew would happen, but as Acts 2.28 and Acts 4.28 teach us, God ordained to happen. We're elect according to foreknowledge, not foreknowledge of what we would do, but God foreknowing us, as we're going to see in Romans chapter 8. Turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to end here this morning. Romans chapter 8. By the way, this is part two of three on election. Next week, we're going to devote our entire morning to the heaviest hitter on election, which is the ninth chapter of Romans. We'll do an exposition of Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 8. The Puritan William Perkins popularized the term the golden chain of redemption, and he took it from Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Let's read that for us. Let's read it. Let's begin reading at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And here's why all things work together for good. For those whom he foreknew, here's that foreknowledge, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also Glorified those who try to hold to a conditional election based on God foreknowing what we would do point to passages like this and say, see, those whom he foreknew would believe. But again, you're inserting something there in the text that isn't there. It doesn't say those whom he foreknew would believe, but those whom he foreknew. For means ahead of time. No means, yeah, it's K-N-O-W is to enter into relationship with someone. Adam knew his wife, and they bore a son. You read in the prophecy of Amos, God telling Israel, you only have I known among all the nations of the earth. You see, for God to know someone is in an intimate, saving, personal relationship. Galatians talks about those who know God and are known by God. This tells us very clearly here that God foreknew a people. He entered into a covenant of love, relationship with people beforehand. Those whom he foreknew, he then what? Predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. And again, I've heard people tell me, well, this is not... God predestining us to salvation. It's God predestining us to be conformed to the image of Christ. (laughs) Again, it's amazing how people will kick against this. (laughs) 
The chain begins with election, God foreknowing us. The next link is then predestination. The next link after that, according to verse 30, is divine calling. The next link after that is justification. And the final link is glorification. But notice the certainty with which he speaks, the absoluteness with which he speaks in verse 30. And those whom he predestined. You see, God didn't just predestine the plan, as some people will try to tell you. He didn't just plan the plan of salvation. We're talking about individuals whom he foreknew, whom he predestined, whom he called, whom he justified, whom he glorified. We're talking about individuals here. God foreknew us, predestined us. Then in time, he called us by the preaching of the gospel. He brought us to himself. And notice here that everyone who is called is justified. It doesn't say some whom he called are justified. It says those whom are called are those whom he justifies. There's no breaking of this chain anywhere. Everyone who's foreknown has been predestined. Everyone who's been predestined will be called. Everyone who is called will be justified. And everyone who is justified will be glorified. That's why all things work together for good of those who love God. You know, we look at Romans 8.28 and we separate it from election and we separate it from predestination and we separate it from ultimate glorification. And we say, oh, I'm going through this trial because... Well, Romans 8.28, you know, it promises me that sometime down the road, you know, some good's going to happen. That's not how we're to look at Romans 8.28. Now, it could be, you know, in some instances, like in the case of Job, where after everything he endured, God at the very end, Job 42, God restores him. He restores him, restores his fortunes, gives him more children, Increases his riches again, but not everyone's promised that in this life. And it could be like 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says that we endure afflictions and then experience God's comfort in these afflictions so that we can later comfort people who are going through afflictions. But that's not always the case. And therefore, I am concluding that Romans 8.28 does not reach its final fulfillment in this life. All things work together for good because at the end of this golden chain is glorification with the Son of God. We look for the fulfillment of Romans 8.28 not in this life, but in the life to come. That's why all things work together for good because you've been foreknown, you've been predestined, you've been called, you've been justified, and you will be glorified. And it speaks of glorification in the past because it says good is done. Whom he's justified, those he has glorified. God foreknew us. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many, many brothers. As we conclude this morning, I want to point you to one further reality regarding the doctrine of election. We've seen these heavy hitter passages, Ephesians chapter 1, Romans chapter 8, 
I want you to consider one final reality, and that is the book of life. The book of life. You know, Jesus, at one time in his ministry, after he sent out his apostles to cast out demons and perform miracles and preach the gospel, they came back all excited like little kids, and rightfully so. And they were like, Master, even the demons are subject to us. We've got this power. And do you remember what Jesus told them? He says, your joy should be rooted in the fact that your names are written in heaven and nothing else. Luke 10, 20, rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In Hebrews chapter 12, mark this verse, verse 23. The believers' names are enrolled in heaven. Go with me to Revelation 13. Revelation chapter 13. I'm going to have you turn to Revelation 13 and then put another finger at Revelation chapter 17. Revelation 17. All right, Revelation 13. Look at verse 8 with me. Let's begin at verse 7. Also, it was allowed, speaking of the beast, to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given over it, over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. You see, individuals were written in this book. And when was this book written? Before the foundation of the world. In the Lamb's book of life, Paul's way of saying that is, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's amazing, staggering, the consistency of the scriptures, how they complement one another. So those who do not worship the beast, why do they not worship the beast? Because their names are written in the book of life. Go with me to Revelation chapter 17 now. And look at, look at verse 8. Revelation 17, 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So again, you have these individuals. This is John's way of describing the people of God. They are those who are not of this world. They are the saints. They are the called, the chosen, the faithful, as we saw earlier. But they are those whose names have been written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And so I end with this this morning. Friends, we are not to debate the master's gift. Instead, we are to celebrate his, as one hip-hop writer says, his magnanimous saving of savages. He chose us that we might glorify his grace, 
magnify his mercy. As we're going to see next week in Romans 9, God, out of the sinful lump of humanity, takes apart one lump and creates a vessel into which he pours his grace and his mercy. And in this other vessel, he will pour his wrath and power. And so in the end, the glory of God is displayed in both vessels because those who are chosen deserve to be rejected and damned. Those who are chosen deserve to be forever cast out. And those who are rejected, passed over, well, God has done them no wrong. They hated the light, wanted nothing to do with the light, and therefore they will be vessels into which he pours his eternal wrath. And so both in the end, his wrath and justice are magnified, and his glory and grace are magnified. And thus God and his glory are seen and put on display for all eternity, because that's what this is all about, his glory. The fact that he chose us is amazing because it would amaze us and stagger us if he chose just one. If he chose out of all the masses of human beings that have roamed this earth, if he would have chosen one to be saved, he would still show forth the glory of his grace throughout all eternity in saving a vile, dead, depraved, enslaved sinner. And yet he didn't just choose one. He chose you, believer. He wrote your name in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And some people will point, you know, to the seven letters in the seven churches and be like, well, you know, he does threaten to um, erase your name from the book of life, does he? Or is he reassuring you that he will never blot out your name from the book of life? There's a difference. He will never blot out your name from the book of life. You might be here this morning and you might ask yourself, how do I know? If I'm elect, let's say you're here and you're lost this morning. You know you're not in Christ. You know you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ. You know you love your sin. You know you want nothing to do with him. Maybe your heart is starting to soften towards him, but in the end of the day, you know you're not in Christ. And you're telling yourself, how do I know that I'm chosen? Let me tell you in very, very clear terms. This is how you can know that you were chosen. If you turn from your sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you take him to yourself as the light of the world, as the bread of life, as the resurrection and the, and the life, as the way, the truth, and the life, as the fountain of living water, if you come to him and trust in him, you're chosen. You're chosen. If you believe upon Christ, you are chosen. And when you arrive in glory at that eternal banquet table, you who once doubted if you were ever chosen, but who came to love and savor the Lord Jesus Christ, will sit down and as you remove the chair from the table, you will look at the chair and you'll see your name written on it. It was reserved for you by the Father. That spot was purchased for you by the Son 
And that spot was preserved for you by the Spirit of God throughout your entire life. You were kept for it, and it was kept for you. We are talking about triune salvation here. We are not just talking, you know, high theology and Calvinism and Arminianism and traditionalism and this new one called provisionism as if there's something new under the sun. We are talking about God saving sinners, the Father's role, the Son's role, the Spirit's role, all for the glory of God and his grace. That's what this is about. Let's pray it.